Disrupt Radio, the sound of Australian entrepreneurial spirit. Self-improvement comes at a cost. Physically, financially, but crucially mentally. How do you stay sane? Maybe you own a business, are an entrepreneur, or simply want to improve yourself. Are you overloaded, overwhelmed, and just over it? On Soul Trader, you'll hear from individuals who have achieved huge things in life, how they keep it together, and how they survive the struggle to success. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, and this is Soul Trader. Disrupts Radio. One of the heaviest words in the English language is the word should. From birth, we are conditioned by societal expectations disguised by the word should. Most of you were likely told by your parents, teachers or peers what you should or should not be doing with your life, your whole life. But what about your own expectations for your life? Many of us become tone deaf to the sound of our own intuitive desires and aspirations for our lives due to the overbearing, relentless, ruminative recitals of shoulds drilled into our subconscious by society. But you always have a choice. In order to carve your own path as an entrepreneur and discover what success can look like from your internal reference point, you have to go rogue and drum out the noise. It's both exhilarating and terrifying when you finally decide that the path set out for you by others is no longer enough to sustain you. It takes a leap of faith, a declaration to the universe that you're ready to break free from the shackles of societal pressures and expectations. You know, stepping out of your comfort zone and shaking free from the shoulds. Think about it. Every great story, every monumental achievement began with someone who dared to challenge the status quo. They looked beyond the horizon of what they knew and embraced the uncharted territory of the unknown. This audacious spirit is what defines us as human beings and the unquenchable thirst for new experiences. Yes, the comfort zone is safe, but it's also where dreams go to hibernate. It's a realm of predictability where routines become ruts and possibilities are exchanged for the safety of the familiar. Leaving your comfort zone is not about recklessness. It's about discovering your true potential. It's about realizing that the only limits that exist are the ones you've placed upon yourself. When you take that bold step, you signal to the universe that you're ready for the challenges that will shape you into a stronger, wiser, and more resilient version of yourself. In this space beyond your comfort zone, you'll find innovation. You'll discover talents you didn't know you possessed, and you'll forge connections with people who share your hunger for growth. It's a place where you can reshape your narrative, guided not by societal expectations, but by your own ambitions and desires. As you take this plunge, remember that you're not just defying societal norms, you're defying your own limitations. You're embracing growth, the thrill of the unexpected and the excitement of becoming the architect of your own destiny. Soul Trader. My next guest shares how she broke free from the shackles of shoulds to cultivate her own definition of success. Helen Kapalos is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, recognised journalist and motivational speaker and facilitator. An accomplished journalist, presenter and executive producer with over 20 years' experience, Helen directed, produced and appeared in a groundbreaking film on medicinal cannabis. So no, I really appreciate you making the time to come on here. And I guess before we, before we get started, I always ask the guest, just for our listeners, can you give a little bit of a background about yourself and 
how you came to be doing what you're doing now? So essentially, if I had to describe myself in the in a top line for people that I haven't met before, I've been a journalist. I've always wanted to be a journalist ever since I was a young kid. Was uh, I had a combination of uh, being curious um, and and loving to read and research and asking lots of questions. So it always seemed like the best profession for me to follow. So I've been a journalist for well over the two decades now um, and a documentary maker, uh, worked for all the Australian commercial networks, three of them and the two public broadcasters. Uh, and then when my uh, career was sort of ending um, in, you know, in terms of in front of the camera stuff, um, I was appointed as a multicultural commissioner in Victoria for four years. Uh, and then uh, after that time, went on to continue uh, my advocacy role in the space of medicinal cannabis. Uh, which is where I had made a documentary. Uh, so um, after I did the documentary, it became legal in Australia. So I'm now in the space um, you know, working on an advocacy level, um, but also at a community level as well. So lots of community engagement and actually mental health is one of the most important touch points in this space. So that sort of sums up who I am, where I've been. I guess I'm passionate about people and uh, and causes and um, and I think you know everything I do, uh, I wouldn't be doing it if it was something that I wasn't aligned to. So I think I've always been able to walk away from things and, um, you know, take a different direction if it doesn't align with who I am. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing it. And yeah, you've done a lot, a lot of varied um, experiences, but I guess, yeah, like you're saying, it's sort of following following what you really believe in and it's such an important message. And I think as, when it comes to mental health as well, a lot of the time where, you know, not listening to our gut about what, it's, you know, that normally if you do listen to your gut, you sort of know what the answer is or what you should do, but we can very easily go against that. So you have to be, you know, a really strong person and very self-aware to be able to, to do that and make sure that, you know, you, you make sometimes hard decisions like what you were talking about and going and, you know, following the, the path that, that your gut's telling you to do. Absolutely. I think for me, one of the mantras that I came to embrace towards the end, well, there was a couple. One of them was fall down seven times, get up eight. So I think I always, you know, would put myself in a situation of, well, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen? And, you know, if I can survive that, I'll be okay. And and I, I could always get back on my feet. So I'd always, you know, if I was in a really bad position, sort of reverse engineer and think, how do I? So for example, when I was at my TV career, I felt was ending because it was going in a direction that just wasn't palatable to me and it mm -hmm. didn't align with who I was. So I remember at that point thinking, okay, I really want to make this documentary, but I want to fund it myself. So I decided, and it was on medicinal cannabis. So it was a story that I was doing for a primetime network. Uh, but again, the network editors were sort of taking it down a very sensational path. And I just felt like people's voices weren't being heard. And I thought, well, I'm in this you know, the reason I became my why in this profession was to actually tell people's story and give, you know, um, allow them, um, you know, to speak and, um, and give them a voice that they previously didn't have. Uh, so, you know, it's about truth telling. Uh, and so I remember just making this really difficult decision one day and thinking, well, I have to do the documentary on my own. And what will it do? What, what will it take to get there? So I mortgaged my house to make the documentary. And I thought, if I can't pay it back, what's the worst thing? So I called my sister and said, hey, if this all fails and I lose my house, can I come and live with you? And she said, absolutely, I'll always be here for you. And that was it. I just, I was prepared to lose it all, to um, to walk in my values. And I think it's been a really powerful lesson to me. And I think another thing has been, you know, don't leave before the miracle. So even when I embarked on that path, as rewarding as it was, there were times where I met challenges and I thought, you know, I don't know if this is going in the right direction. And I think being prepared to 
unlearn what I've learned has been another powerful thing for me in my life. I think you know it all, you know, you know what I mean? Like that whole thing of, oh yeah, I know what to do. But then sometimes in a different situation, you've got to go down a different path. Yeah. I mean, we, no one can know it all and it's all about continually learning and it's a really scary thing to do. And I guess the, you know, the world we live in, the society that we live in tries to really push that fear onto us that we shouldn't go and make those decisions and, you know, parents instill that into us. And like you said, you know, I've done the same thing um, to this day where I'm sort of living, you know, in different places and building my company and trying to launch this career in the entertainment world. And it's terrifying and you're always, there's so much uncertainty, but then when you do do that reverse engineering, you, you realize, well, hang on, what is the actual worst that can happen? And okay, I go broke. And go, I'll go live at my girlfriend's house. I'll go move back home. And it's not really that big a deal. Like how's how, what my day-to-day experience, if that happened is not going to actually be that dramatic or as bad as our, I think our minds can be, you know, so creative with, you know, the drama of how bad things are going to be. If, if all of these things don't happen when you real, it's so liberating to realize, no, you can just go and do what you want to do. And, um, you know, I love the, that's amazing. Yeah. You're saying you went and actually, wanted to tell this story, this documentary in a truthful way, in the way that you believed in and went and and did that. And, you know, we, we can do that. And I think it's so important that people like you are doing what you're doing because we live in a world where there's just so much garbage out there and you don't know what's real and what's not. And we just need more authenticity. And I think if that's done in the right way, that'll always rise to the top, the people that do that. 100%. I think for me as well, you know, at that particular time, I guess in a material sense, in a status sense, I sort of had it all. Um, I was in a primetime television role. I was, you know, a lot of free things always came your way, free invitations. You were, there's a lot of adoration and, you know, a lot of so-called friends around me and so on. And it just never sat that well with me. I didn't feel you know, like it was an authentic life. And I actually thought, gosh, I feel like it's going the other way now. So I do understand when you hear a lot of people say, you know, what they're at the, you know, um, at that point that, you know, seems like they're at the top of the mountain peak and they think I'm um, feel empty and, uh, you know, and there's something missing here. I think it's because it's sort of filled with a lot of vacuous stuff. And I think for me, I just knew at that point, you know, if I didn't tell that story properly, it was just such a burning feeling. And I felt like it was almost something being channeled through me as well. So it was, it was it's hard to explain, but I think I just came to embrace the, the non-linear pathway at that time. I just thought, I'm not going to ever know what's around the corner and that's okay. And I remember visiting my dad in Greece and he said to me, you know, oh, you're mad, you know, you're going to lose everything and this is your TV career. You know, he really felt quite validated at my Mm. being on television as well. And that was a bit hard as well because a lot of people, I was defined that way by so many people and, you know, uh, it was confronting to them. And, you know, I remember saying to him, you know, this is the best thing I've ever done. And, and lo and behold, like it was interesting to, you know, once I did do the documentary and I remember going to three different production houses, I remember literally not having money to eat. Uh, I just honestly don't know how I did it. was just a, such a bizarre time. But, uh, you know, then a month later, I got a call from a distributor in, um, in the US, in New York, and she was pitching it to Netflix. And it was one of six Australian documentaries uh, licensed through a global documentary deal, just out of nowhere. And this was wow. literally kind of a backyard documentary in a way, 
Um, and it still continues to be shown um, through a lot of public health institutions in the US. That was my my aim. The intention was a, a really strong intention to educate people. And I'm that and that's you know, really a, it's the best thing I ever did because it's actually what I'm doing now is still continuing on that pathway. But yeah, you're yeah. right. We we get trapped in the confines of, you know, what everyone else is doing and social media does make it hard and you know, I think all the expectations from our parents are, you know, they can be old school. It's mine certainly where I'm at. My mum passed away when I was in my 20s, but my dad certainly had that pressure on me. But I think he's come to realise that I've become, you know, that I've been a much happier and uh, much fulfilled individual because of taking that pathway. Yeah, and leaving more of a mark on the world. I mean, you, you've already had that other career, but now you're really you know, putting something out there that, you know, the documentary that's there forever. People can learn from that. There's no time frame on that. And that's a, you know, real piece of content that you've created. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing, like what you're saying, where sort of you identify something you're passionate about. And I've experienced this in the entertainment world where I wanted to get into acting and started getting into it. And then, then you get caught up in all of the vanity and all the, you know, the bullshit of it. And then you, you start not really enjoying you know, the thing that you were passionate about and questioning, why am I doing it? And then you have to do this full reset and find out how do I actually do this in a way that is meaningful and that I can communicate these messages in, you know, the way I originally wanted to do it. And I think that's just, you know, applies to so many, so many aspects of, again, the world we live in, because we're going to be pulled in so many different directions just by opening up your phone in the morning and looking at all this information yeah. and what other people are doing. So you've got to be so strong in identifying what are my values what what's the purpose i'm actually following and how do i actually stick to that and otherwise you it's almost impossible not to get pulled you know in a hundred different directions 100 percent. it's almost like the way brands have to think about themselves you know to be single and singular um and unified in that in that vision and it's always interesting as well working in the real world where you see actually a lot of you know um a lot of really successful people are very, very um, unwavering in their vision and what they, you know, uh, and how their values align with that as well and how they're, you know, um, the constellation, I guess, of principles and um, and what's wrapped around that is so entwined um, with what they're doing uh, that they just can't, you, you can't go wrong. Even if there is a misstep or if you're going sideways, it's always a valuable lesson. You, you know, you're still going forward because you've, you really understand what that point is or that origin is. So, yeah, I think, you know, um, you're absolutely spot on. But, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's pretty fascinating in this world of constant distractions, isn't it? Uh, because, yeah, it, and I think what I wanted to say too is when you're talking about resetting, I started to realise towards the end of my television or broadcast or being on air career, if you like, um, because I don't feel like I'm not working in um, in broadcast anymore. I absolutely still am, but I just have more of a behind the scenes role in producing and directing um, films uh, these days. But certainly when I was more um, outward facing, I guess, uh, I did have to reset a lot uh, as well. I, phys I did a physical and spiritual reset a lot of the time. And I remember working with a coach who would teach me how to, I guess, you know, feel into the emotion of every single line, every single introduction. And it was so powerful and it's such a mindful exercise to do when you're reading the news as well. Um, and it was, yeah, I just remember um, when I was, you know, um, given those tools, uh, I felt like 
you know, my connection to to the audiences was strengthened. So that sometimes, you know, those sideways steps or the reset can actually teach you how to come in more powerfully uh, for your audience. Um, and 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 if you're also powerfully connecting to yourself as well, which makes it again. Um, yeah, so meaningful. Definitely. And, and I think everything's, you know, the sum of every, every like thing sort of in retrospect leads to, you know, where we're going and they're all important experiences. So sometimes we don't realize that as they're happening, but then when you look back, you sort of say, oh, well, I had to go through that to then, you know, be ready for this next stage. And I learned, you know, all of these different lessons from, you know, everything sort of leads to the, end sort of goal that you're working towards or whatever it is. Soul Trader for the work-life balance sheet. Are you able to tell me more about the documentary? And I guess I want to hear about, you know, what what was that process mentally? How hard was that? How long did it take? How did you, because it's a, you know, it's a huge thing to put together and then to have it sort of, you know, get the outcome that you're talking about. You know, I'm so interested to hear about that. In my career, I started in broadcast journalism in my early twenties. And I did a documentary when I was around 27 on the closure of the BHP uh, in here in Newcastle. So, you know, when the steelworks were closing, it was a really big deal for the town. And the way that that came together was literally, I found all this old film footage um, in the offices of BHP. And then it just became this incredible organic process. And fast forward, however many years later, and the same thing happens with the medicinal cannabis story. I'm thinking, I'm in the middle of the story thinking this has to be told. And I remember being in the library, you know, in the state library in Melbourne, uh, researching the topic and thinking, well, what they're doing in Israel is incredible and what they're doing in the States is amazing, but we don't really see or hear all of that put together. Um, So I went back to the drawing board. First of all, I went back to the bosses and said, how about we tell the story like this? They said no. Um, And then I just uh, asked them whether I could actually, I even asked Kerry Stokes. I went right to, you know, to the CEO of the company and said, okay, I want to put this documentary together. Um, Can I exit my contract early on the proviso that I take some of the, um, have some of the rights to the story that I've been doing on Sunday night? So that once they said yes to that, I knew it was game on. Uh, And then I just went, I thought it would be maybe a nine or 10 minute feature. So I started storyboarding uh, what it would look like. And then I went to the bank and, uh, you know, said I was getting a kitchen renovated or something. So I pulled out the first $20,000. Then that kitchen renovation got bigger and bigger up up until $300,000. And yeah, it was nuts. I mean, as I started doing it, the storyboard just got bigger and bigger because when I started, so I, you know, found more and more people. When we actually put the story to air the first time on Channel 7, we ran a poll and 2.97 million Australians voted in that poll and around 95 or 96% voted in favour of medicinal cannabis which to us at that time in 2014 was just like mind boggling. We just didn't Mm. know that there were so many people using it, uh, particularly uh, families that had children with intractable epilepsy. Um, It wasn't just chronic pain or cancer. So anyway, so when I uh, started doing these interviews and then I just grew and grew and grew. And I think probably 
I would say uh, that I booked tickets to Israel, found cameramen. I, 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 I kind of understood the process anyway, of course, through my career. So I directed, produced and wrote the documentary. And then I hired an old boss from uh, NBN where I'd started in Newcastle. I really respected his writing and, you know, he had really strong production values. Uh, I hired a composer from Newcastle that I'd worked with um, and then a, a bunch of cameramen that I worked with around the country. Uh, and then in Israel, hired crews there as well. So it was just, again, totally organic, but I would say three months um, to shoot the entire thing. And then I'd say another three months in post-production. I went uh, to three different companies to, to get it right. So probably six months altogether, which is just sort of unheard of really. Uh, but as I say, I would work day and night on it. It was just like a person possessed. Uh, and I remember visiting my dad when I went to Israel. I went to see dad after because he lives in Greece. And you know, he was just watching the whole thing. You know, I was shot listing and I was just putting it together and, you know, had all the storyboards there. And he was just like, what what are you doing? <laughs> um, so so um yeah, probably six months altogether, and then it didn't take long for the Netflix deal to come through, and then SBS also took it for a couple of years in. So that was a special broadcasting service in Australia. Um, so which was fantastic because they're a multicultural broadcaster. So. It was just such beautiful alignment with all of it. And the reason I ended up, um, one of the reasons I got the multicultural commissioner position was because you know, during one of those points where I was pretty broke, I was asked to MC uh, the Premier's Gala Dinner uh, in Melbourne. And I remember just before I walked up the steps to do my intro and I just having this feeling of like, I just have to talk about multiculturalism the way it is. I have to talk about how I'm reconciling the identity of an Australian, but also my ancestral her heritage and these strengths that I feel like it's brought me. And I just really wanted to be really honest with that, you know, with the audience about that. And it turned out that whatever words or whatever I said, um, or whatever was spoken that evening resonated with the Premier and the Multicultural Minister, and I was asked to apply for that job. So in all of that mm. sort of despair and not knowing what was coming next, there was another beautiful direction to take. Um, and, you know, learning about inclusiveness and diversity up close and so on has led me back to, you know, the multi, you know, uh, back to, I guess, medicinal cannabis advocacy, but I still work with all the multicultural communities as well. So, yeah, to answer your story in a really, really long way, um, yeah, it took about six months all up. Um, and then, yeah, uh, there was all these wonderful distribution deals, you know, which didn't make the money back, mind you, but it still, it didn't matter. It's the best thing I've ever done. If you go all in on something like that, like you're saying, you sort of don't know what exactly what's going to happen, but then all these other avenues have come out of it as well. And I mean, the learning curve, you know, you're saying that you're now producing and doing a lot of behind the scenes um, work in, in the industry that the learning curve from doing that documentary must have just been enormous for now, allowing you to go and do other production type work, I guess. Oh, unbelievable. You know, you won't believe one of the first things that happened when I joined the Multicultural Commission, we had, uh, we were working a lot with uh, marginalised communities, particularly youth. And so one of the things I set up was a partnership, an internship with the ABC, a paid internship with them, which the minister approved, which was terrific. And we had incredible mentorship and um, all the kids like that, were, uh, we mostly targeted people from African Australian backgrounds and Muslim backgrounds as well. Uh, and, you know, other marginalized communities, but the kids that got roles are still in those roles today. And then we created a multicultural film festival. Then we had workshops teaching kids how to actually make films and bringing in. So 
all of the things mm. that I learned, all the people in that constellation of work all came together again, a lot of them in a pro bono way as well. And I still continue to do that work behind the scenes today. So mm. um, it's just amazing. It's just unbelievably en enriching. So who would have thought that, you know, that one decision to make the documentary then ends up, you know, benefiting multicultural communities in Victoria and leaving this all these beautiful legacies sort of pieces with the film festival and so on. So, yeah, it's really amazing. It, I think it's just, to me, I'll, I'll never live my life the same way. I will never, ever, ever be comfortable, like being comfortable. I'm always going to, mm. you know, strive for that uncomfortability because that's where all the magic is. And it's a tough way to live your life. You don't know what's coming next. Um, you certainly have really strong boundaries about what you will accept and what you won't accept. I guess when you're values led, that's the way. Well, I find that so inspiring though, because you know what we're, we're working towards a lot of the time being comfortable and then trying to have everything sorted out, but for what, you know, once you get that, then what do you do? You know, where do you, that's what I never understand. And whenever I think about, oh, in the future, you know, I'll finally settle. I'm like, no, I can't. Like what, what does settling mean? That sounds like you're killing your soul basically. Like what are we, what are we stopping for? Like that's when you stop really being alive and learning about yourself and other people and doing new things. And it just doesn't really make sense. I think even, even if you had all the money in the world, you should have that mindset of, I want to, I, I want to be just challenging myself and doing, I don't want to be comfortable. I want, I need to be out of my comfort zone. I need to be pushing for whatever it is, whatever your sort of, you know, your gut or your, your soul or whatever is telling you to do, because otherwise what's the point, you know, what are we, what are we waiting for? What are we, what are we being comfortable for? Oh, 100%. And if you, have all the money in the world, that's when you should really be working hard, I think, to, you know, exactly. challenge what your soul's mission is as well. Um, I really take a lot of inspiration from my dad, who's 87, and he lives in a village in Greece, and he just lives life to the fullest. He's incredible. Like, I love his humour. I love the way that he's so present. Um, I love that, you know, he certainly has been far from perfect. He has, you know, in, in many ways, probably inflicted a lot of trauma on us kids, but um, <laughs> because he's lived some of the quintessential existence of a, of a the archetypal Greek man, I guess. Um, so... And that's a whole other story. Uh, but I really love what he's taught me. Um, I love the human values and I love even, I guess, that sort of street, you know, wise approach that he's had. Like, I feel like my mum was, you know, a lot more sort of conservative and I guess we got really strong work ethics from her. But I feel like dad's taught us a lot of emotional intelligence, how things are in the world, how to interact, how to keep, how to keep energized about things and connecting to causes and yeah it's so liberating the personal freedom that you feel and I think you're totally right when I start getting comfy I'm always like oh no something's going to come and bust all this up I know it and that's exactly what happens Soul Trainer for the work-life balance sheet I guess this podcast and a lot of the work I do is focused around mental health. With the medicinal marijuana, how do, is there a big link to mental health? And I know overseas, like you're saying, you know, I've been living in the US and it's much more embraced over there. What, what are the sort of links and is, is there a lot of crossover? Definitely. Well, last night, actually, I was um, facilitating a Zoom session uh, with a couple of researchers, one who's doing incredible work um, 
with, you know, the links to anxiety and particularly post-traumatic stress disorder. So you'd probably be aware in the US and um, in Australia um, that a lot of veterans suffer PTSD um, and often uh, they don't get a lot of benefits from, you know, uh, the prescription medication, which can be really tough and actually exacerbate those symptoms. So there is absolutely studies that, um, you know, probably not double blind placebo controlled randomized trials, but it's more real world evidence. And certainly in that area, um, it's the evidence is strong enough for uh, governments to be subsidizing, particularly I know in Israel, uh, the PTSD program is subsidized for medicinal cannabis uh, for veterans there. Um, in Australia, we it is subsidized for chronic pain, but veterans um, are also able to take medicinal cannabis, which is subsidized by the government, which is incredible, really. I think there's still work to to do there. And now the psychedelics uh, have also, um, there's also legislation around that as well. So um, microdosing some of the psychedelic psilocybin and MDMA and so on. That's another story, but there's a pretty strong link there as well to, to some of those treatments. So yeah, there is, um, there's definitely some really compelling work that that is emerging um, around mental health and uh, types of medicinal cannabis treatment. I think it's slowly being more accepted here in Australia. Um, definitely, if you look at the prescription numbers, they're doubling and uh, every year we're seeing a lot more authorised prescribers coming on board, but we still there's still a really big education piece. But what is interesting is that it does make up a lot of, you know, a big percentage of people that are being treated with medicinal cannabis. It's often related to um, mental health, anxiety, depression, stress, you know, in, in its many forms. So, yeah, there's, there's a really good story to tell there. Yeah, and I guess, the, yeah, it's, it's all education, isn't it? It's crazy that alcohol is just accepted been on and off like I used to binge drink a lot and then I don't really drink that much anymore in the last six months I had a break completely and since doing that you sort of look at it with a different lens and really become conscious about how it is embedded in everything we do every social interaction you know you're catching up with someone you with family it's just so accepted so part of everything yet we're not educated and looking into just on, like you're talking about here, on a, just a purely medicinal level, what things like marijuana can do to, to help people. And it's just, there's a, still it seems like there's such a long way to go with that conversation. Absolutely. I mean, what I noticed last night is that we had on our call was, you know, it was essentially geared towards healthcare professionals. And I was amazed actually that the education is still really, um, it's an early moving industry in Australia. I understand that. But I am amazed actually that the stigma is as big as it is. And uh, late last year, we met with the federal health minister here in Australia. Um, and that is one of his concerns, I guess, you know, education for healthcare professionals and um, it, you know, being able to roll out the right way uh, because it's still an, considered an unregistered medication here. But but it's the everything. And when you think about it, it's, you know, 1930s prohibition propaganda campaigns and we've all been denied plant medicine. So for me, I was never, you know, I've never been into any kind of recreational drugs and I actually don't drink very much as well. And I'll talk to you about that in a second as well. But I think for me, what what where I thought the injustice was, and I think for me, I saw it as a human rights issue because I remembered when my mum was sick with cancer, the opiates weren't working. And mm we just didn't know that there were other alternatives. And what you really notice is that particularly in like palliative care, it really provides a lot of quality of life. And so for anyone, for if we've seen anyone suffer in our life, we'd do anything um, to make that, to ease that suffering. 
So that's why I think it's a story that does in fact relate to everyone. And, and on alcohol, um, I guess with my dad, he's never been, he was a big smoker, but he's never been a big drinker. And my mum didn't drink either. So I guess I didn't, my learned behaviour was, you know, I didn't, just didn't embrace drinking at all. Brother and sister, a little bit different, I think. Um, so, but I guess I was just socialised in a different way. Uh, and it's not that I'm judgmental about it, but I am kind of surprised that people go down the drinking path as much as they do and during COVID it was really glorified I noticed on social media it was like everyone was doing you know drink o'clocks and you know uh, there'd be work meetings and it was almost like you're the the minority if you don't drink it's almost like that you're judged and I in fact I remember someone saying to me in that during that time I don't trust people if they're not drinkers yeah I was like wow there's a wow. lot of social norms around that I have definitely been exposed to a lot of really big partying environments. Television is just, you can just imagine, you know, you're on the road as well. You're overseas, you're, you, you know, you're at natural disasters or covering the Olympics or whatever it is, big teams coming together and it's just everywhere. And when I worked mm. at Current Affair, my nickname was Charlie because I didn't know uh, what people were talking about when they spoke about Charlie. And so they would always joke with me and say, go back to Newcastle, you know, you're so naive. But um but I think it just speaks to the, uh, you know, I was always really happy in those times. And I knew that I could go to a party, be the last one standing, dance and so on, um, and not need to do that. But I get that that's not everyone. And I think it's just because that's how I learned. You know, when I was growing up, there, there are other things that I could do. And that was putting my, you know, personality out there or, you know, like enlarging my energy to cope with that force field. Because... I think I probably am an addictive personality and it might have gone the other way. Um, so this mm. is something I talk to my nieces about a lot because you know, there's five of them and they all have different relationships to addiction and alcohol. And um, I'm always trying to impress upon them that, you know, I don't know, like it's not that it's uncool. Like, I guess I'm just trying to say the mo most powerful thing is to know who you are. So just remember that no matter what decision you're making, know who you are and, and be able to walk that path and that's the biggest lesson I can you know impart in them as a as someone that's been exposed to so many temptations um and I've really never felt the need to yield to them well I think that point is just so so important because if we know if you know who you are then like you're saying you're not going to feel the need to or you're going to at least question and yeah. you know why you're doing it and um yeah, it's just you, you start to realize that. Or for me, I've been such a people pleaser in a lot of my life. And then when I started yeah. breaking that down, I was like, hang on. If I'm truly comfortable, if I can become more comfortable with myself, do I feel the need to do it? And, you know, the answer is normally no. And then you can start making different decisions. But when you're sort of not aware enough about it or thinking that way, then it's so easy just to fall in all of these different behavior patterns. So, um, yeah, I think that's yeah. such good advice. 100%. And I mean, it's not like we all have vices, you know, we all, we're all going to struggle with something. So it's not as though I'm saying, well, you know, I don't do, you know, alcohol and how good is that? Well, there's other things that I have to work on as well. Um, and, but I guess that knowing who you are is knowing that you can also get up. You can fall down seven times and get up eight, yeah. you know? So even if you are on an addiction pathway and I've watched my dad and other family members struggling with that, I think my message to them is just, you know, you just got to keep going and it, you know, it could be a lifetime work to find out who we truly are and walk down that definitive path. But that's the beauty of it. That's the journey of, um, 
you know, and, and I think what's really amazing about it are the people that we influence along the way, the multiplier effect it has. And so and it, eventually it's how you find your tribes as well uh, and how you find, you know, that village around you. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I take a lot of heart in that. And I think that's an ongoing process as everything is. As everything is, but looking at it, you know, in a way where when things are a struggle, when you do fall down that seven times, that's um, that's not a failure. That's learning. Like where you want to fall down seven times because you, if you just got what you want all the time, where are you going to learn? When are you going to grow? When are you going to question things? How are you going to develop? You know, you're not you're not going to have a backbone to you. So it's sort of so important. It's that's actually you know the things that you need to have happen to then become who you're going to become so it's um yeah it's interesting and i guess we're not really taught to think that way but we need to oh a hundred percent i think it was eleanor roosevelt that said all those years ago you must look at you know fear in the face every day you must do the thing that you think you cannot do it's really fascinating how over the years i think over the last 20 years we've we've had like definitely that conversation has enlarged about looking at failure as a positive and being strengthened and becoming resilient um, with that. But it's definitely something that hasn't really been taught, I don't think, to us um, as a life skill. And that does worry me. Uh, you know, again, when I see my nieces, you know, I just, and with what's happening with social media and so on, I just, you know, want them to understand that, yeah, that personal strength is something you will never, like you have to keep building the muscle of resilience. And so, like we have to go to the gym every couple of days. Like it's not something you just build and we walk away. It's something that we have to learn is part of our life and the greatest rewards will come from there. I know when I was, every time I was at my knees, you know, um, and in the future, if that continues to be the case, I just always know that you can get up again. It's a really powerful thing to know. Maybe life will be altered. I mean, certainly what I will say is that when the television career fell away, wow, I suddenly didn't have a lot of people around me, you know, um, mm. and there was a very, very different feeling and energy around the people that had sort of always been around me and maybe energetically leeching or even like, you know, I used to pay for a lot of people's stuff and, you know, I was a massive people mm -hmm. pleaser and I probably always will be one, um, but I've learned to temper that. I've learned to bring in temperance and understand that I don't need to go to those lengths that I can actually all the intangible stuff that I'm giving people is actually the most powerful stuff and the stuff that they need and want more. It's probably tough for some people where I'm not doing as much as I did in terms of a monetary thing, but it, there's just no value in doing that. Yeah. So I've had to kind of rebuild relationships and some of them have fallen away and that's probably been a really powerful thing and a good thing for me as well. You, you learn more about yourself and you learn about the people around you. And it's not to say that they're not good people, but certainly it's just strengthened me in a way that, again, I've, you know, reconnected to the relationship with myself and learned to love who I am despite, you know, all the expectations I've thought, you know, people have needed. So I guess in my profession, it's been so outward facing, maybe in a way I wanted people to love me. It could have been subconsciously something, you know, look, hey, here I am. It was accidental that I became a newsreader because it was not something I sought. But I remember my cousin saying to me years ago, you know, maybe on some level you've needed to, to have that validation. And maybe it was, I don't know, but certainly it's interesting because you'll never get it really. It can only come from you. Well, and, and I think, you know, and that's why what probably got me into acting in that world, I was at the time 
on a couple of TV things and loving the validation, the instant gratification thought, oh my God, you know, everyone wants my attention now. I'm going out. People are, you know, coming up to me. I want to, how do I get famous? I want to do acting. And then ended up liking it for other reasons, but um, at the time doing it to try and fill that void. But like you said, no matter, even if you, even someone, even Brad Pitt, if you're, if he's not comfortable with himself, it's literally, there's no end to how much it's like a drug where you just keep needing to absorb more and more. And that's why a lot of these famous people, are highly depressed drug addicts, you know, some of them die early because it is taking you actually further away from what's real and important in life. It's, it's if you don't manage it properly. Oh, yeah. I'm a big reader of biographies and I've read, I don't know, maybe at least a dozen this year. You know, everyone from Paul Newman to Gina Davis to Richard E. Grant. Uh, and it's just been fascinating. There's, that theme resonates in every single biography mm-hmm. um, you read. Particularly Paul Newman's was really interesting uh, because he had a real issue, um, you know, with the way that people, I guess, had a relationship with his looks. And, um, and so, you know, he felt like he got a lot of breaks that other people didn't get, for instance. So it's just... It definitely is something that I think a lot of um, people that we would consider to be, you know, um, you know, I guess having it all uh, would probably be, you know, some of the more challenged individuals on the planet, I would think, because where do you get that sustenance from? How do you know? I mean, even for me, it was a like mm. a little microcosm um, in TV world, but it does throw you off centre to get all of that validation all at once. It's kind of, you know, um, it's it can be, um, a, you know, a drug, I guess, you know, and something that you that you want to see more of, even in an unconscious way, in, in an unconscious way. But I think, yeah, that self-sustenance, there's a lot to be said for that. And it's an on, you know, it's a work in progress. Soul Trainer for the work-life balance sheet. This is Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I'm Nick Brax, and I'm talking about moving out of your comfort zone with my guest, Helen Kapalos. For anyone listening, if they want to learn more about you or the work you're doing, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, I've got a website, just helenkapalos.com.au. I'm on LinkedIn and social media, uh, so Instagram and Facebook and that type of thing. And I, I guess there's different messages on each of those platforms. So yeah, that's the best best place. But I'm um, always happy to chat to people individually. So if they want to contact me directly through those channels, feel free. Helen, thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Really enjoyed chatting to you. And I personally took so much out of this find your story and all these messages so inspiring. And I think it's incredible what you're doing. Uh, and yeah, just to, I know you're busy. So appreciate you setting aside the time to, to come and talk to me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. So thank you. Thank you so much. A lot of the interview with Helen focused on moving out of her comfort zone. By repeatedly challenging herself and making the harder choice, she was able to pursue her passions and be true to herself, leading to unexpected and rewarding outcomes. It can be terrifying to move out of your comfort zone. For most people, the uncertainty is incredibly difficult to deal with. But if you're looking to be bold and follow your passion, whether that be starting a business, performing or creating something new, you'll need to learn to be okay with being uncomfortable. Fear does not ever completely go away, but we can change our relationship with it. 
Rather than looking at doing something new and uncertain as scary, we can reframe it as excitement. Rather than being afraid of failing, we can reframe it as learning. You will learn more in failure than success. We need to fail fast and learn from mistakes. This will rapidly speed up your learning curve. Michael Jordan famously said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and I've missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Edison also said, I've not failed 10,000 times, I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. Helen's decisions were grounded in her values, choosing to align her actions with her authentic self. She walked away from situations that didn't resonate with her true identity, even if they seemed successful externally. This is such a valuable lesson. In a world often fixated on external validation and the pursuit of fame, the decision to prioritise your values over the allure of adulation represents an extraordinary act of courage and authenticity. Fame, with its promises of recognition and applause, can be intoxicating. It has the power to make you feel larger than life, with the world's attention fixed upon you. However, the pursuit of fame often comes at a cost. A cost that can manifest as compromising your integrity, values and your true self. It can lead to individuals portraying a curated version of themselves, bending to societal pressures and trends rather than staying true to their core convictions. On the other hand, choosing values over fame signifies a commitment to remain grounded in authenticity. It's a declaration that the applause of the world holds less significance than living in alignment with your deeply held beliefs. Such a choice requires immense inner strength and a profound understanding of yourself. Helen found greater satisfaction by pursuing her passion for honest storytelling and advocacy, even if it meant leaving behind a glamorous TV career. This was a much harder road, but allowed her the freedom to truly express herself and tell stories that she felt had to be heard. You probably know that feeling you get in your gut when making important life decisions. It's your intuition telling you to follow your heart. It's easy to ignore this based on social conditioning and influence of those around you. When you're next making a big decision, try and remove yourself from your normal environment and take your time, tuning into your gut, feeling and seeing where it guides you. Helen's openness to unlearn and adapt was crucial. Transitioning from on-air broadcasting to producing and directing, she acquired new skills, formed connections, and leveraged her diverse experience for new opportunities. Unlearning can be as important as learning. I remember in my first day of acting school being told we're now going to unlearn everything we've been taught over the past 20 years. What the teacher meant was undoing that social conditioning. By stripping it away, we can tap into our true self and be authentic in our choices. Being open to change, like Helen was, is so important in the modern world. Everything is moving and adapting at a rapid pace, and if we become stagnant, we'll fall behind. Keeping an open mind and being adaptive in business is really important to keep ahead of competition and provide valuable services. Helen's willingness to learn from every experience, positive or challenging, contributed to her growth and adaptability. Continuous learning is vital in navigating complex and evolving paths. Helen's journey underscores the importance of creating impactful work. Her documentary on medicinal cannabis brought about change in education, demonstrating that authentic stories have the power to drive societal shifts. I loved her philosophy of fall down seven times, get up eight. This epitomizes resilience. 
Challenges are growth opportunities and setbacks can lead to unexpectedly positive outcomes. Helen's work is about leaving a lasting legacy. Her documentary advocacy and community involvement have inspired others to follow their values and create meaningful change. You can get so caught up in your day-to-day goals that you forget about the bigger picture. Taking regular time to think big and focus on the impact you want to make will help guide your daily choices. Helen's curiosity, love of learning and willingness to ask questions were one of the keys to her success. Curiosity uncovers new paths and ideas, nurturing personal and professional growth. There's no single path to success. Unconventional roads can lead to unexpected achievements and a more genuine and satisfying life. Building genuine connections with a diverse range of individuals and communities enriched Helen's experiences and opened doors to opportunities she might have otherwise missed. Connecting with like-minded people is a really important part of the journey for any entrepreneur. Helen admires her father's approach to life, valuing his humor, presence, and emotional intelligence. Despite his imperfections, he has imparted valuable life lessons. In summary, the interview highlights the significance of resilience, emotional intelligence, and self-awareness in navigating life's challenges. It underscores the power of personal stories, rituals, and connections in shaping well-being and happiness. Disrupt Radio. For the work-life balance sheet. Soul Trader. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Sunil Badami. While businesses have long used data to track productivity and sales and customer behaviour and everything else, it's incredible that they haven't used the same research to determine how to design workplaces that encourage creativity and increase productivity. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. How can managers get everyone back in the office? with some employers like major financial company FNZ threatening its entire workforce with the sack if they didn't come back to work. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift, live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.